we will be on page 16, and we'll get to that in just a bit. Let me remind you of what's coming up quickly. Tonight, we do have our home groups, community groups. They meet the first and third Sunday evenings of each month, so they do meet tonight. So if you're enrolled in that, be aware, and if you would like to, check it out. Then see the folks at the Information Center desk, and they can direct you on how to get information on that. Two weeks from today is our next baptism. So any of you who have been delaying on uh, that, trying to get your courage up, now today's the day. So before you leave today, stop at the Information Center desk, pick up the one-page application, fill that out, give it to them. Baptism's a commandment of Jesus. Baptism means, the word in the New Testament means, to be dipped, to be immersed. So if that hasn't happened, then you haven't been baptized. Even if you got wet as a, as a child, that's not New Testament baptism. So biblical baptism is being immersed in water because it symbolizes the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's not a command that can be ignored. And if you've not been baptized, fill that out, and then I will contact you this week, and we'll we'll go from there. Ladies, mark April the 12th for the annual Ladies' Night at the Range. The Men's Night at the Range was a couple of weeks ago. And in the program you should have received on the way in, you see the details about that. But you can register for it at our resource center out the back door and across the hallway. Today is the final lesson in from self-help, final session in from self-help to God's help. And then starting uh, next week for four weeks, we will have four classes going on at the same time. Uh, I will be teaching our newcomers orientation. So if you are new to our church and consider yourself in that category if you've never taken the orientation, if you've even been around a while and for whatever reason you haven't been able to take the four-week newcomer's orientation that meets during this hour, then I strongly urge you to take that. We're going to meet in one of the adult classrooms that's out the back door and across the hallway, and I go through a booklet of material that tells you about our church and what we believe and how we started and what our goals are for the future, why we do things the way we do. It's a small setting with just those of you who are, are new and want to know more about our church, and you can ask questions. But it doesn't uh, obligate you to anything. So I strongly urge you to get that information. It'll help you then to make a decision, a prayerful decision about this being the place for you to eventually join and grow and, and serve. Or maybe it'll answer the question that says, no, this is not the place, but that's what we want. We want to answer those questions so that you can either move ahead or move on so that you can find the place that the Lord would have you. That'll start next week during this hour. Uh, you don't have to register for that. You just need to show up next week during this hour, and we'll be, meet, be meeting in adult classroom number two, which, as I said, is out the back door and across the hallway during this hour. Same time that's going on, we will have Membership 101 happening. Those who have joined our church in the last several months since the last Membership 101 will be taking that. You will get an invitation because that's a, a discrete number of people. Uh, for that, Pastor Larry leads leads that to get you up and running now as a new member of our church. And also, we will have the Crossroads class meeting. That's our college and career age, 18 to 25, uh, roughly, give or take, 
are in that class. Brother Bob Fight leads that. And then everybody else, if you're not in the orientation, you're not in Membership 101, you're not in Crossroads, you're in here. And over these next four weeks, we will have men from our church teaching. We'll have four different men. Uh, next week, Brother Troy Fisher is going to be teaching. The following week, Dr. Combs is going to teach. Matt Olmstead the week after that. And then Paul McKenzie on that uh, on that fourth week. And then the following week is April the 21st. That is Easter. We don't have this hour. We don't have the Sunday school hour on Easter. We meet at 1030 on Easter for one service, and there's uh, no second hour. The following week, uh, April the 28th, uh, we would normally start then a new series in here. Everybody back in here, back to our normal schedule, except I won't be here. I won't be here on April the 28th. I will be at Eastern Michigan University with Laney, who is graduating uh, with her teaching degree, and they have their commencements on Sunday morning. And her commencement is Sunday morning, April the 28th. So our family will be there. But the following week, May the 5th, we will start a new series in here. That new series is titled, You Mean the Bible Teaches That? Question mark. And it looks at ethical issues, abortion, capital punishment, homosexuality. We'll, we'll need to take at least two weeks on that since it's become such a large issue and we want to teach what the Bible has to say about those issues and how we as Christians can can not only view it but how we can respond and engage in our in our culture with all that's going on so that's what's uh, coming up today is the final session in from self-help to, to God's help we've seen that God wants us to change that God is in the change business. Now, one of the things that we do in the Christian life, and, and I'm making the assumption that that those who are here are are Christians, we're Christ followers, we're disciples. We desire to be like Jesus. We desire to grow in Him. If that's not the case for you, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, then all of this is really moot. None of it really means anything. All of this stuff we've been talking about with regard to the Holy Spirit and the cross and how all of that changes us, none of that applies unless you indeed have the Holy Spirit. And that only happens uh, to those who have come to God through Jesus and received the gift of salvation that he offers. And if you don't know whether that's the case for you, then I would love to talk to you about that. Uh, I have business cards in my pocket. If you shake my hand on the way out and say, I'd like to get together with you, I will give you one. And then you can call me this week and we'll set a time to get together because that's the most important decision that you will ever make. Uh, and that is uh, with regard to your relationship with God through Jesus. And that's what we're in the business of doing is leading people to establish those relationships, but then having done that to grow in that relationship. And that's what this class is about from self-help to God's help is about the fact that God saves people. God has done this work in Christ for us, and he offers the gift of Christ's work to us, and he moves upon us at a point in time to cause us to see our need for that, and we receive it, and God does all of that for the purpose of changing us. God does not, is not interested in a transaction that we make, and then we move on and he forgets about us and we forget about him. And when I say the transaction we make, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle at church once when I was six or whatever, you know, whatever the, or at camp I prayed a prayer or whatever the testimony may be. 
That may have been the time where you came to Christ. And if so, that's great. And that may have been how it happened. But God's in the business of from that point on seeing us grow in Christ. Your testimony may be, I came to Christ, but no one discipled me. Nobody's emphasized this. So I've kind of floundered. Well, I'm glad God's brought you to this point and he's put a desire in your heart to move forward from where you are. But that's what this is all about because God wants us to change. But I've observed this, that in those who belong to Christ and therefore want to change, we put too little emphasis upon God's role in this change process and sometimes too much emphasis on our role in the change process. That may sound strange, but I found that. And here's what I mean by that. Ask yourself, are you convinced, are you absolutely convinced that the God who sought you out and brought you to himself is absolutely interested in seeing you become like Jesus? Are you, are you convinced of that? That God himself has a stake in this? That God did not bring you to salvation in Jesus at whatever point in your life that happened and under whatever circumstances that happened. He did not do that to simply sit sit back and see how you do with it now. The Bible teaches that this God who was active in bringing you to himself is active in as well in bringing you to be like himself. So Philippians 1.6, he who has begun a good work in you will do what? He will bring it to completion, right? Until the day of Jesus Christ, this God will be at work in your life, sanctifying you. That is, that word means setting you apart, setting you apart from the world, setting you apart from sin, and moving you toward Christ and Christ-likeness. God will do that. God is faithful, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24, and he will do it. That's what it says. God is faithful and he will do it. And God's got a dog in this fight, you know. God cares about this. Why does God care about it? Because he's got people like us running around saying we're Christians. (laughs) Well, guess what? Then he wants us to look like it. He wants us to act like it. God has a stake in this. So God did not save you to leave you on your own. And sometimes I think when we talk about these things, we get the idea that we need to up our game. I mean, the key is I need to up my game. I need to start, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I have people come and tell me this. Fathers who, you know, are having trouble at home and, you know, they'll come in and say, you know what, I know I, just, I know I need to read the Bible more. I know I need to have devotions with my kids. I know I need to. And they talk about all these things they need to do. And they do, we do, need to obey the Lord. But that's not the first place you go. The first place you go is actually to the Lord. You don't first go to obeying the Lord. You first go to the Lord. And you go to the Lord and you remind yourself of who this Lord is. And you remind yourself of what this Lord has done for you. And you meditate upon the fact that God has started this work in you. And this is how marvelous and gracious this work is in in your life. And then you ask this God. You ask your Lord. You say, Lord, 
I want this. I want to be like Jesus. I want to change. I want my heart to be changed. I want my heart to be pure. I want my heart to move from anger to peace and contentment. I want my heart to move from depression and despondency to joy in the Lord. Lord, I want this. Now notice a prayer like that is not focusing on the people that tick you off. You know, Lord, I, I got to have a new job. <laughs> I just got to have a new job. The, these people are killing me. And Lord, you got to change my kid. My kid's killing me. I mean, I, the kids these days. And I used to say some people's kids, and now I have one. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But, but notice, it's our regular routine is to focus on something that needs to be fixed or someone that needs to be fixed instead of saying, Lord, even in the midst of this relationship, in the midst of this circumstance, I want to be changed. Now, I ask you at the beginning, are you absolutely convinced that God wants you, God desires for you to become like Jesus? If that's the case, if you ask him that, what do you think he's going to do? You ask that and you desire that. You want that. What do you think God's going to do? If you were here in the first hour, you heard me say, we don't order God around in prayer. We don't tell God what to do. But here's a prayer I guarantee God answers. From a, from a sincere heart that loves the Lord, who says, Lord, I want to be like Jesus, he answers that prayer. Right in the middle of whatever you got going on, he answers that prayer. We sometimes focus too much on what we're supposed to do and too little on what God will do. Don't start with your to-do list. Start with the promises of God. Start with the character of God. Start with the cross of Christ. Start with what you know about him and the fact that he's at work in your life. And you express that to him. You remind yourself of that. You are now aligning your heart with his heart. So that indeed you want to obey him and you begin to obey him. Rather than I have to obey him, I want to obey him. And if you don't want to obey him, and all you're doing is what you were told to do, then Christ does not have you. Did you know that? If all he has is your actions and he doesn't have your motivations and your desires, he doesn't have you. And the Bible teaches that God wants to get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is what I desire, what I want, what I value, what I give my allegiance to. And if there is anything or anyone that is capturing your heart other than God, then that's going to stunt your growth in him. So it's not enough to just do it because I have to do it. When I was a kid growing up, many of you know, I, I grew up in a church that taught you could lose your salvation. And over time, as a young adult, I came to realize the Bible does not teach that. If you have truly come to Jesus, you've given your life to him, 
He regenerates you. His Holy Spirit begins to live uh, in relationship with you. And he starts changing you so that what you want to do changes. And I remember I would be discussing this with some of my brothers and sisters at my former church that taught that. And they would say, well, if you believe that, if you believe that you just get saved and you can do whatever you want, then why don't you just get saved and go out and live like the devil? That was actually words they would use. Live like the devil. And my answer was, because when you come to Jesus, you don't want to do that. Right? He changes what you want. And actually, someone who voices that, it's actually somewhat scary. Because if that's your view of the Christian life, I'm only doing it because I have to do it. And if I didn't have to do it, well, then let's party. But no, I want to do it. So your concern, my concern, should be that we have hearts that want God. That want Jesus. We know that God and Jesus want us. Because he came after us when he saved us. But now he not only wants you to punch your ticket to heaven when you got saved, he wants Jesus to be your passport through life as well. But that means your heart, my heart, being aligned with his. And that means not starting with the to-do list. Not starting with all the stuff you need to do. Now, it includes that. But that comes after you've focused on who God is and why it is you do this. Why I attend church. Why I read the Bible. Why I pray. Why I want to raise my kids in a, in a certain way. All of this will now be focused on God. And the God who gave all of that to us will get the glory and the honor for it, which is the whole point to begin with. So God has a stake in this. So we, we trust him. And we seek what he says is best. Stop focusing on changing the circumstances primarily and first. And instead, then focusing on changing, on God changing the circumstances, instead focus on being changed in the circumstances. That's what our final session is about. That's what I want to emphasize in our final session. Page 16. You see the chart. And the chart tells us that we all have our situations and they are all different, but it calls it the heat of life. And our natural bent is to go to the right side of that chart because our hearts down at the root there on the right side, you see the negative heart, the sinful heart. We're not desiring God. We're not desiring what God wants. We're desiring what we want. God can come along for the ride. I may use God language while I'm pursuing my stuff, but I'm still pursuing my stuff. And so idolatry has captured my heart in some form. Someone or something has replaced God. This negative heart then gives rise to a thorn bush kind of life and negative consequences in, in my life, in my attitude, in my demeanor, in my words, and in my actions. The thornbush kind of life, notice friends, is, is attached to a heart. 
So please don't mistake this. The thornbush life or the fruit life on the left side. That thornbush life, fruit life are both attached to a heart. They're not about the heat. The heat is separate. That's up at the top. That's your circumstance. That's your situation. So it would be easy for you to mistake that what we're saying is if you will pursue Christ the way we've been trying to emphasize and I'm going to do in our remaining time today, that if you do that, then your life will just, your whole life will just be flowers. You know? And and everything will just be coming up roses. Because it's a, I've got a fruit tree kind of life now. But here's the thing. See, what's bearing fruit there is you. Not the other people in your life. (laughs) And not the heat. The heat hasn't even changed. The heat's still there up at the top. So you could easily get the idea that to go from a thornbush life to a a fruit-bearing kind of life means that the things around me and the people involved in my life are also God's going to work in their life and they're all going to get it together. And nobody's saying that. No, your heart is attached to one tree and that's the tree that is your life. And that root cannot force fruit in anybody else's life, right? So your spouse may still be a pain. Your kids may still be a pain. Your health may still be lousy. But in the midst of it, you're bearing fruit. And people wonder, how can he or she maintain the kind of joy and contentment and attitude that they have in the midst of what they got going on? And the answer is, that's, a, that's what God does. That's what Jesus did. <laughs> And you think about telling people that. You think about in the midst of your stuff. Somebody asking you, how are you? How did you get that pink slip that the rest of us got at work? We're all getting laid off. How did you pick that up? And you're like, okay, Lord, what do you have next? And they're like, hey, where are you? what's up with you, man? What's wrong with you? We're all ticked at management. You know, we're going to sue these guys. And you're like, calm. And then you're able to say, this is what Jesus does in someone's heart. It's not me, this is Jesus. What kind of, what kind of witness is that? Isn't that a beautiful witness to the grace of God? So that's what we want. That's what we want to come out of this class. And so in our final session together, let's focus on the fruit. Nothing is more obvious than the need for change, but nothing is less obvious than what needs to change and how that change happens. That's true. If if we think about it, it should be obvious to us all that change needs to happen, but sometimes it's not so obvious about what needs to change and and how it happens. It's not enough to just diagnose what's wrong. We need to see what's wrong at its at its root so that it can be fixed, so that it can indeed be be changed. You take your car into the shop and they do a 
you know, a bunch of diagnostics on it and they spit out a report and they tell you this was, this is what's wrong with it. That's not going to be good enough for you, is it? You want it fixed. So we don't want to just diagnose what's wrong, but we want to, to see it fixed. Now let's remind ourselves of what's wrong. You've got the two trees and you've got two different kinds of heart. You've got a sinful heart and you've got a godly heart coming at the heat of the heat of life. And it's the heart that God wants. God is not, the Christian life is not a matter of just keeping the rules. But rather the rules we keep, we keep because of the God who rules. The rules we keep, we desire to keep because we love the God who rules. And so I don't just do the stuff. And I don't just go through the motions. And I don't just check off my to-do list. And I don't just stand before God one day and say, look, I went to church every Sunday. And look, I put money in. And look, I served. And look, I did all the stuff pastor said I was supposed to do. And all the while, I'm frustrated. And I'm angry. And I'm hating life. And that's what everybody's seeing. And I'm not a witness for Jesus. That's not what God desires. So we don't just keep the rules. We keep the rules because we love the God who rules us. But loving God with all our heart, with all of our mind and all of our soul is not contradictory to keeping rules. Did you know that? Jesus said in John chapter 15, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. You'll do what I say. But notice, do this because you love me. We have 613 commands and prohibitions in the Old Testament. 613. And Jesus was asked, which is the greatest? 613. You would think he would pick one of the top ten. <laughs> but you remember what he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And indeed, those commands, those two, are two of the 613. But they're not found in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5 where the Ten Commandments are found. Deuteronomy chapter uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul is found. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 is where love your neighbor as yourself is found. So he doesn't pick two from the Ten Commandments, but here's what he did do. Jesus said, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself and the other 611. <laughs> and everything else hangs on this. And if you just take the breakdown of the ten they really are. Those ten are about loving God and loving others, are they not? If you love God, you will have no other gods before him. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You will indeed observe his day of rest and a time to worship him on a regular basis. You will do all of these vertically oriented commands and then you've got six horizontally oriented commands. Not stealing, not committing adultery, not murdering. All of that. But that means I love my neighbor as I love myself. At the root of all of this, dear friends, is what you love. And if you see fruit in your life, it's because it's growing out of a heart 
that lacks love for God and or lack love for others. At some point in the particular sin or sins that you struggle with, at root is a lack of love for God and a love for others. Love and rules are not mutually exclusive, but here's how they work in a relationship with Christ. Suppose you've got a, a woman, she's single, she starts working at a, at a company, she has not met her new boss yet, and at the end of the office area where she works, she sees a door with a bulletin board next to it, and this is her boss's office, it turns out. He posts directions and rules for the employees on the bulletin board, but that's all she knows. She hasn't met him. She doesn't know him. It's just a list of rules. And he posts them on the, on the, on the board. What do you think she thinks about her boss at that point? Well, she may have some fear just because he's the boss. And then the rules on the board could be looked upon with a similar kind of fear and possibly distaste. These rules intended to govern her behavior, maximize her performance, might not inspire or motivate her, but she follows them in order, those in order to avoid being fired. Now imagine that several months later, the boss is also a single male. And they develop a personal relationship and eventually they marry. Now, just putting aside that you'll probably get fired if you did that because you're not supposed to fraternize at work, but put that aside. But now, think about her perspective on the bulletin board. Her view of that changes to the same degree that her heart changes toward her new husband. She now sees those guidelines as wise and loving directions from someone who cares for her well-being. She no longer sees them as burdensome. She sees them as for her good. And therefore, she does them willingly and is thankful for them. You guys see the difference? But it starts with relationship. If I've got a relationship with God and I love the God who has loved me, then his rules are not burdensome. I'm happy to follow his rules and to show his character in the following of his rules as the best as best I as best I can. And throughout the Bible, it is that it is the heart that is the issue. Uh, but in First Samuel chapter 16, you remember it was uh, God had sent Samuel to look at the house of Jesse for the one who would be the next king. And he looks over all the sons of Jesse, and they had all paraded before him. and uh, But none of them are the, are the right one. And then they say, well, Jesse says, well, I still got this one. You know, and he comes, but he's kind of scrawny, and they bring him. And, and, and God says, this is the one. And famously in verse 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, God says to to Samuel, look, uh, I look on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. The heart has always been the issue. In Jeremiah chapter 31, you see Jeremiah 31, that is on page 17. And Jeremiah talks about the new covenant that God is going to make with his people. So that everyone now that comes to, to God is going to have a changed heart. In the Old Covenant, God changed hearts too. But not everyone in that covenant had a changed heart. You had the Mosaic Covenant and follow the law. And in order for genuinely saved, regenerate people to do that, God had to change them from the inside out. 
But under the new covenant, everybody who's in that covenant has a changed heart. So it's not just some of the people, all of the people. Everybody who is part of the church has a changed heart. Did you know that? Uh, Everybody that's part of the church, capital C, body of Christ, universal church. I don't mean everybody that's part of CBC. I hope and pray that's true. But everybody that belongs to the body of Christ does so because they have had a regenerated heart and they've partaken of the new covenant. And the issue of the heart carries forward into the New Testament as well. Page 17, you see Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through through faith. I do have 1 Samuel 16 there. You guys see it referenced? I just don't have it printed out for you. So I'm only half the liar that I, that I thought I was. All right, so in our remaining time, let's let's talk about um, how this looks in in our lives. Take a look at page page eighteen, actually page nineteen, and the new and surprising fruit that arises out of a changed heart. So you may be thinking to yourself, you know, does this really work? I'm a Christian. I, I I am saved. God has worked in my heart. I believe that. When I hear truth, it resonates with me. I want the right things. But I've, all my life, I've had struggles with certain things and they haven't changed. And because of that, I'm skeptical about all this. Is it really going to change? Can it change? I mean, I know a soft answer turns away wrath, but whoever wrote that doesn't have my kids. (laughs) Look, man, if I turn the other cheek, people will take advantage of me. If I try my best, the truth is I try my best to forgive her, but whenever I see her, I'm flooded with the memories of what she did to me. I know the Bible says that God's grace is most powerful in our weakness, but in my moments of weakness, I just feel weak. I don't sense God's grace. I tried being a servant, and now people always expect me to be the one who gives. How can I love my enemies if I hardly love my friends and family? I know I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church. Sometimes she just drives me crazy, though. It seems impossible to be the kind, be kind to a teenager who's so rude to you. It's very hard to treat my boss with respect when he cuts down everyone who works for him. It's difficult to stay committed to a church that's never recognized my gifts in ministry, and on it, and on it goes. Now, don't want to raise a show of hands or any of that, but my guess is some of you feel that way. Yeah, that sounds good, Pastor, but I've been doing this for a long time and I still have the same kinds of things. Well, consider this situation. A man who's a highly respected leader with power and influence over thousands of people, yet within his own family, he's powerless. Something's very wrong with his son. It's not just that his son is rebellious. He's doing all he can to usurp his father's position. The father comes to the devastating realization his son has turned many loyal subordinates against him. Then just when he thinks that things are as bad as they can be, he learns his son's planning to kill him. He knows he can't fight for his position and kill his own son, so he flees his home and he goes into hiding. Put yourself into that father's position. Imagine the depth of grief and pain. 
Wouldn't you expect to find a bitter, angry man recounting all the good things he did for an ungrateful son? Wouldn't you expect him to question God, especially since he had sought to be faithful to him? Wouldn't you expect this exiled man to be hopeless and cynical and unresponsive to the spiritual counsel of others? Well, you, some of you already know who we're talking about. We're talking about David and King David and his son Absalom. And it's recorded for you in 2 Samuel chapters 14 through 18. And Psalm number 4, Psalm number 4 is a window, actually Psalms 3 and 4, Psalm number 4 is a window into David's heart as he's going through that. And we have it for you on page 19. David's going through all this. He pens Psalm number 4. Answer me when I call you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you... Love delusions and seek false gods. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when your their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Well, okay. In the middle of all that, you can say that stuff. And this, by the way, the Psalm number four is called a nighttime Psalm. So before he would go to bed, he would recount this to himself about his relationship with the Lord. Now notice a few things quickly about this. He does not run away from God in the midst of this extraordinary heat. He reminds himself of his identity as God's child. He examines his own heart. In the midst of this, he worships God. He serves, he ministers, and he rests in what God has, what God has given him. So friends, and, and David stayed in this for a period of time. He stayed in this heat. He stayed in this cave. He had this situation with Absalom. It doesn't mean it turned out well. It turned out tragically for Absalom. You all know that. Many of you do. But hear this. God does more than deliver us from the heat. He delivers us from ourselves so we don't simply survive the heat, but we bear good fruit in it. So do you believe it happened with David? It happened with Paul. That's why these passages are in the Bible. To remind us that it can happen, to change our cynical thinking that says, no, it can't happen, it's been going on too long, so that we understand that under the pressure of family difficulty, love can grow. Under the heat of unappreciated sacrifice, perseverance can grow. In physical suffering, peace and sturdy faith can blossom. In the midst of want, giving can grow, where thorns of greed and selfishness were once flourishing. Peace can live in the middle of financial disappointment. Humility can thrive in times of personal success. Joy can live under the burning sun of rejection. Hope can even blossom in times of grief. Now, how is that? Because God's at work. This is what God does. Jesus said in John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. He said that those that I give the Holy Spirit to, they will have water, living water that will flow out of them. If you're a Christian, you have God's Holy Spirit. You have this living water. 
This living water that can be a continual supply to create the fruit in your life that God wants and desires. Now, one last passage. You have it on page 19. You have Galatians chapter 5. And if you can find verse 16 there, it says, I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, and then it'll go on later to give you the fruit of the Spirit. So you've got the fruit of the sinful nature. You've got the fruit of, of the Spirit. But at the very top of that, the entire law is summed up in verse 14. Remember, Jesus said, love God. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul here says it's summed up with love your neighbor. Why did he leave love God out? Because you can't love your neighbor without loving God. That's assumed here. And so with this now, notice that this passage begins with a warning against self-indulgence. That's verses 13 through 15. We all know that sin causes us to be more committed to ourselves than to anybody else. And that's why we compete with one another in traffic and in the checkout line to be first in the shower in the morning or to get the last cookie on the tray or compete for someone's affection or for that promotion at work. Sin causes us to be more concerned about our own welfare than anyone else's. And that self-centeredness destroys relationships and it does great harm. So that's how the struggle starts, verses 13 through 15, but it doesn't end there. It pictures people who are committed to ministry, who look for ways to bear the burdens and do good to others. And so look down at the bottom of page 19. Chapter 6, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual seek to restore them. Carry each other's burdens, verse 2, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. So it pictures people who have turned from themselves and being self-centered outward toward other people. As we say yes to the Holy Spirit, this living water produces new fruit in our lives. And that's what you have at the end of Galatians chapter 5. What we know is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These aren't an ideal standard that God holds over us. These are gifts that the Spirit produces in us. This change within us changes the way we respond to the things around us, the heat in our lives. And this is the fruit that results. Kind people look for ways to do good. Patient and faithful people don't run away when people mess up. Loving people serve even when they're sinned against. Gentle people help a struggler bear his burden. Friends, Galatians chapter 5 and 6 are filled with hope. The Bible teaches that a fruit tree bears fruit under the scorching heat of difficulty. So now remind yourself, as a child of God, you guys with me for a few more minutes. As a child of God, I am that tree. Its fruit is God's gift produced by his spirit. I need not be satisfied with thornbush responses. It's not impossible to be who God says I am, a tree bearing fruit in the middle of the desert. I can do this. This can happen in my life. Because God wants this, and God wants my heart. And if I align my heart with the heart of God, this is the kind of fruit that will be produced. So don't first focus on the circumstance. Focus on the heart that you have in the circumstance. Now, let me read you just an anecdote, and we'll be done. 
Here's an anecdote from the life of an individual whose life had fallen apart. The counselor who helped her says this, as she sat across from me, Bettina looked tired but not discouraged. In the previous six months, she had watched her idyllic life completely fall apart. The suburban estate she once lived in was now a hazy memory. The circle of friends that made life so enjoyable had evaporated with her marriage. Her husband had not only forsaken her for someone else, he had done everything he could to leave her destitute. She once had a healthy bank account and endless credit, but now seldom had enough money to, for bare essentials. Her country club days had given way to 10 hours a day at a menial job. She even had to change churches. But as she sat across from me, she did not look discouraged or angry. And I remember thinking I was watching the grace of God in action. Nothing else could explain the character of this woman in the middle of this sad story. God had used the scorching heat of marital trial not only to expose Bettina's heart, but to transform it. The woman who once got her security from her situation now knew what it meant to rest in the Lord. The woman who once complained at the slightest difficulty now lived with courage and endurance. This woman, once given to bitter gossip, was now a picture of true forgiveness. She had once lived for herself, now joyfully she served others, and she summed it up this way. I hope I don't ever have to go through this again. It's been harder than I ever imagined it would be. There were times when I wondered if God was there and I wondered whether I would make it. Sometimes it seemed impossible to do what God says is right. And then she hesitated for a moment and said, But I would go through it all again to get what God has given me. He has so completely changed me, it almost seems like the old Bettina was someone else. And the counselor says she was incarnating the truth that God doesn't simply cool the heat in our lives. He transforms us in the middle of it. Although some of the heat of this marital trial would remain until she dies, she was not wasting away in anger, in doubt, in bitterness, and in envy. By God's grace, she was in the process of personal renewal, producing fundamental changes in the way that she responded to life. There's hope, friends, because Jesus is all we need. And Jesus, the one who saved you, desires to see this produced in your life. So rather than first focus on your to-do list and all the stuff you need to start doing, focus on who do I love? What do I want? What do I desire? Go to God with that. Say, Lord, you've given me your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in those that are yours. I want that. And I give my heart completely to you. Do what you want with it in the midst of the heat of my life. And as a result of that, you'll be able to say these words from one, from one uh, poem. Each morning that greets me is full of hope. Not because I'm successful at what I'm doing or because the people near me appreciate me. Or because my circumstances are easy, but because God is, and he is my father. To look at the morning any other way is to believe a lie. To live in hope is to live in truth. To live in truth is to bring him glory. To bring God glory in my daily living is the highest form of worship. That's what God saved you for. So give your heart to God. Examine what it is that you love most. Tell God you want to desire Him more than anything. Transform my heart, God. 
Don't transform my heat. I mean, if you will do that, I'll thank you for that. But transform my heart. And the God who began this good work in you will be faithful to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time we've been able to have together to think about our lives. In our lives in a fallen world full of heat that tempts us, that agitates us, that sometimes is is crushing upon us, scorching us, as it were. Lord, we, each of us respond to those circumstances, and our response is going to be dependent on the hearts we bring to it. And so, Lord, I ask you to help us to do what we've said in this final session. Rather than focusing on a list of things we need to do, let's focus on what you are doing. Let's focus on what you have done. Let's focus upon what you have promised. These things are sure. These things are precious. These things are eternal. These things are absolutely certain so we can count upon them. And so, Lord, help us to be people who recount those to you and come to you with humble hearts that say, Lord, this is what I want produced in my life. And I'm asking you as I humble myself before you to produce this kind of heart in my life, a heart that wants to obey you, a heart that obeys you because it's my greatest joy. Lord, I pray that you'll see that from your people. May we do that this afternoon. May we do that this week. And Lord, we know you are faithful and you will do it. We know that that's the kind of prayer from a a humble heart before you that you will answer and you will produce this fruit in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of the various heat that's represented here, that we will see different hearts brought to those circumstances so that now we can bear the fruit that you desire that shows the kind of grace that only you can produce that other people see and ask about so that we are lights in darkness and we can say, This is what Jesus has produced. Help us, therefore, to bring glory to you. That is, display your character in the midst of our heat by hearts that are changed by you and toward you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.